Mark chapter 12, let's read the first uh, 13 verses this morning. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him. Cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Father God, we're so thankful for the Word of God. We're so thankful, Lord, for the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this one this morning, I pray you'd teach us from it. We know, Lord, that parables, for the most part, have a central meaning, one particular truth that the Lord was trying to convey. And I pray that the central meaning of this one would be clear. Speak to us, those of us who need to hear this. All of us need to hear it in a certain way. But, Father, I pray that if there are those to whom it is particularly applicable today, I pray they will hear. I pray they will respond. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. Help me, Father, to say only what I should and certainly nothing I ought not to say. Help me, Lord, today to be uh, invisible. I pray that people would not see me but see you. I pray, Father, that people would not remember me but remember the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. So speak, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to say to you this morning the name Benjamin Martin, how many of you would know who that is? Interesting. Benjamin Martin is a fictitious character, of course. He was the, uh, the main character in uh, the movie The Patriot. Now, do you remember him? Benjamin Martin. Benjamin Martin had a saying, as if you remember that movie when it first came out, uh, the very opening line of that movie was him quoting in the background, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. Remember that? In this section of the gospel, Jesus told a parable. And in that particular parable, he expressed a similar concern, not for himself, but for others, uh, to that that was expressed by Benjamin Martin. What he was saying here, and this is the central thought of the entire parable, is there is no escaping the judgment to come, and the cost is very high. Judgment awaits those who reject Christ. As a matter of fact, I think that could be the theme of the entire passage. Judgment awaits those who reject Christ. This parable is mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We covered this one time earlier when we were uh, going through all of the parables of Jesus. And uh, you can go and, and, and read about that if you want. At that time, we looked at it from the book of Matthew's perspective. And so today, basically the same if you read the two. If you read all three of them, as a matter of fact, they're very, very, very similar only a couple of very minor differences. 
but uh, today we'll look at it from Mark. And we're going to first of all unpack the parable itself. What did Jesus say? And then we're going to try to make some application from that. What did Jesus mean? So let's look first of all at the parable and consider first of all what he said. In verse number one, he said, God planted a vineyard. God planted a vineyard. Now, he, he talked about a man there, a man planted a vineyard, but the man described therein refers to God. And the vineyard described therein refers to Israel. Uh, you can study that out on your own. You can look it up, but take my word for it. That's what it stands for. God is the man, and the vineyard is Israel. And, and that way of picturing Israel is seen all throughout Scripture. There's a lot of different places where Israel is referred to uh, as a vineyard. Uh, perhaps the clearest would be in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it, for... The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's pretty clear. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looks for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And so there's other places we could go. That's perhaps the most obvious one that describes Israel as the vineyard. And no doubt that Old Testament scripture and others like it were, were, were on Jesus' mind and in the mind of his hearers. As he spoke this parable to them. So the man was God. The vineyard was Israel. And just as the owner had made every provision for his vineyard in the parable, so Jesus was reminding his audience that God had made every provision for his people, Israel. That brings us to verses 2 through 5, where we see that God expected fruit from his vineyard and sent servants to collect it. He expected fruit from his vineyard and sent servants to collect it. Now, the servants that are mentioned here represent God's prophets that he had sent down through history to his people. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, last week maybe, I can't remember when we did it, but sometime recently we were just in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 11, verses 29 through 31. Jesus pointed out that his hearers had rejected the message of John the Baptist. And now he was broadening his criticism of them. And saying not only John the Baptist, but all the prophets. Every one of the prophets had been treated poorly, and their message had been rejected. Of course, we could go all over the place and see that the response of God's people to his prophets had often been that rejection. Second Kings chapter 17, the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets. Every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. That was always the response, or at least usually the response. Rejection. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 16, they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no 
remedy. We could, we could look at example after example. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about Jezebel. Jezebel uh, did not have a good relationship with the prophets of God. You might remember her response to Elijah's amazing victory on Mount Carmel. That would be one spectacular example of rejection of a, of a particular prophet. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time, I'm going to kill you, boy. That's what he was, she was basically saying. And that was her treatment of the prophets. Jeremiah is another example. Jeremiah uh, verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 15, Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. Rejection of Jeremiah. Uriah is another. There was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. And then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, Elnathan the son of Akbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt, brought him to Jehoiakim the king, who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Jeremiah 26. Again, rejection of the prophet. Zechariah is another example. The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. And those are just a few examples. The writer to the Hebrews described the treatment that God's servants normally received and had received all down throughout the history of the children of Israel. Hebrews 11.37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Sawn in two. Can you imagine that one? Some sources say that that's what happened to the prophet Isaiah, that he was put to death by being sawn in two while he was alive. So Jesus is saying here that the owner of the vineyard sent servants to collect the fruit of the vineyard, and those servants were rejected time and time and the meaning is clear. God had sent prophets to the people of Israel time and time again, seeking to turn their hearts to God, and yet they were rejected time and time again. The owner of the vineyard was perfectly just, wasn't he, and expecting to get his fruit from his vineyard, just and expecting that, and amazingly gracious in attempting to collect it. Don't you think it's kind of amazing? I mean, think about this. He sent somebody and they killed him. And he sent somebody else and they beat him up. And they sent somebody else and they stoned him. And he sent, and he kept doing it. Don't you think that's amazing? Don't you, don't you wonder about that? Surely the hearers must have wondered about that, about his patience and his forbearance continuing to send one after another. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people. On his dwelling place. What a reminder of the grace of God. Think about it. Charles Spurgeon one time told a story. He described how a large sum of money had been given to a fellow by the name of Rowland Hill. Rowland Hill was a well known pastor and leader in that day. And this large sum of money had been given to uh, Mr. Hill to give to another poor and destitute pastor. 
this person. Apparently knew they needed it. So Rowland Hill took this money, and he thought to himself, well, the amount is too much to give all at once, and so I'll just give a little bit at this time. And so he put some in an envelope, and he sent it to the pastor, and he included a little note that said, there's more to follow. And a couple weeks later, another envelope came to that pastor and said, there's more to follow. And then the third week and the fourth week and so on and so on until finally all the money had been received. Spurgeon told that story and he used that story to illustrate that good things we receive from God always come with that same prospect. There's more to follow. God justifies us in the righteousness of Christ, but there's more to follow. He adopts us into his family, but there's more to follow. He prepares us for heaven, but there's more to follow. He gives us grace, but there's more to follow. He helps us to old age, but there's still more to follow. And then Spurgeon concluded, even when we arrive in the world to come, there will still be more to follow. See, God's grace is inexhaustible. There's no end to it. And it's seen here in Jesus' description of this owner just continuing to send and to send and to send and to send even though they were rejected over and over and over. And then we come to verse number 6, where we see that after he had sent all of these and been rejected so many times, when all the others were rejected, he sent his son. Now we all know, don't we, who the Lord Jesus Christ was referring to here as the son. Certainly, it was representative of himself. It was the son of God, picturing himself, making a clear distinction between himself and all those messengers that had already come before. John 3.16, of course, says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. First John 4.9, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying something very, very clear here. He's saying the rejection of John, who they'd already talked about in a few verses earlier, rejection of John, who was a prophet, that was bad enough. And rejection of all the prophets down through history, that was bad enough. But now these to whom he spoke, these leaders that he was speaking to, were on the brink of a much greater rejection. They were on the brink of rejecting the very Son of God. And that brings us to verse number 9, where we see the rejection of the Son was the final straw. Verse number 9 is our text verse. It's the verse that I, I used to get the title for today's message. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the Lord do? Is what we titled this sermon. And Jesus asked that question. And here's what he was asking. He was asking, what's the right thing to do in a case like this? Guys, you're the leaders of Israel. You're the, the judges and those who ought to be able to interpret this kind of thing. What's the right thing to do? And what does justice demand? In a case like this, one commentator in explaining this said the design of asking them this question was that they might condemn themselves and admit the justice of the punishment that was soon coming upon them. He wanted them to say it. He wanted them to judge themselves. You might remember the story in the Old Testament of David and Bathsheba, uh, David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his subsequent sin of murdering her husband to cover up the child that came about as a result of that union. And you may remember that there was a period of time where David and Bathsheba uh, were together and there seemed to be no, no real ramifications to this thing. And then one day a prophet came into David's room by the name of Nathan. Do you remember how Nathan got David to recognize what had gone wrong here? He told him a story. 
told him a story about a man who had one little ewe lamb and how this man had uh, lost his one little ewe lamb to some other bum who had come along and taken it from him. And, and, and as he told this story, David got roused up and realized how unjust this situation was. And he pronounced judgment upon this man. And then Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. It was you. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing right here. He was saying, what does justice require in a case like this? This is what has happened? What should God do? Now, we don't see their answer here in Mark. But if we go to the book of Matthew, and you don't have to do that. You could do it on your own sometime. But if you look at the account there in Matthew, you'll see that they did answer him. Matthew chapter 21, verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Their answer was exactly right. That's exactly what justice requires. And he got them to say it and to see it. Their answer graphically described it. They admitted that these were wicked men, and they admitted that justice demanded that such wicked men be destroyed. So that's the parable. What's the application? We've seen what he said, what Jesus said. Let's consider now what he meant. How should we apply it to our lives? And I think in this case, as in most parables cases, uh, the answer is is actually quite simple. I think it can be explained with a single word. And in this case, the word is, is, is very simple. Judgment. Judgment. The whole point of this parable is that judgment awaits those who reject Christ. Judgment is coming. It is just. And it is final. Now, for some reason, we don't like to talk about that kind of thing. And for some reason, we we want to ignore that part of our Bibles today. We, We like to talk about grace. And we like to talk about love. And we like to talk about all those positive things. When you start talking about this, everybody starts to get uncomfortable in their seats. And it gets real quiet in here. People don't want to hear that side of the gospel. There. In recent years, several of these, uh, what should we call them? Uh, I went, I died, and I went to heaven, and I saw Jesus, and came back to tell you all about it. Those kind of books. Several of those have been written recently. Some by little kids. Some of them have been turned into movies, and uh, they're very, very popular. Uh, every time somebody writes one, they become a bestseller. But you know what's interesting about every one of those books? Not a single one of them talks about this half of the equation. Not a one of them talks about the justice of God. Not a one of them talks about the judgment to come. None of that kind of stuff. There was one that was written, and this was one of the earlier ones. It was written by uh, somebody named Betty Eady. It was called Embraced by the Light. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 20 weeks. It, it was five weeks as number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And here's what she talked about in there. She said in November 1973, she allegedly died after undergoing a hysterectomy and returned five hours later with all the secrets of heaven revealed by Jesus. Here's what she said. She said, Jesus, quote, never wanted to do or say anything that would offend me while she visited heaven. Indeed, it seems like Jesus was relegated to the role of a happy tour guide in heaven. None of that kind of stuff. Not the Savior who died on the cross of Calvary, whose blood was shed to pay the price for our sin. None of that is mentioned. And that's why, you know, I, I, can't, I can't say 100% none of these things are completely, absolutely false. There may be some little speck of reality in some of it, but almost all of them are completely false. This thing doesn't happen. Paul said when he died and went to heaven, He said he saw things which it's impossible to put into words. 
saw things which are unlawful for me even to utter, he said. Many people today are like that author and these authors. They don't want to hear anything that might offend. They don't want to hear anything that's hard to hear. They don't want to hear about judgment that is to come. But my brothers, my sisters, judgment to come is a real thing. It's a very real thing. And Jesus pulled absolutely no punches about it here. Consider just a few of the judgments that are mentioned in the Bible, and there are several. We won't talk about them all, but there are several judgments that are mentioned. The first one we need to talk about is the judgment upon Israel, because that's the primary one that is mentioned here. A national judgment, setting aside of Israel in favor of the church, in favor of the Gentiles. That's his primary point here. In verse 10, he quoted Psalm 118, verse 22. He described himself as a stone over which some will stumble and under which some will be crushed. A stone of judgment. And the listeners must have recognized that because that's a prophecy that they had heard many, many times. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse number 11, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. Jesus was saying plainly to these Jewish leaders, judgment is coming to the nation of Israel. And although it's not stated very plainly here in, in, in Mark, again, if we go to Matthew, who was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, you can see the effect that this had on them. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said, I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And that was an absolutely astonishing statement to them. They believed they were the promised, or the, the, the privileged people. They were the ones, the chosen ones. And then if we go to Luke's account, we see that astonishment in them. Because when they heard these words, Luke said, they heard it and they said, certainly not. How can that be? It can't possibly be. All the privileges that the owner of the vineyard had showered on the tenants would now be given to others. They had forfeited their privileged role. The nation of Israel as God's, was God's chosen nation, nation to carry his word, his truth to all of the world. And failing to fulfill God's purposes for that meant that privilege was going to go to somebody else. And it is now the privilege of the church, the responsibility of the church. We're in the times of the Gentiles now. As that has taken place. And this judgment, this judgment of Israel, it took place then with the entrusting of the gospel to a different people. Paul said in Acts chapter 28 and verse number 28, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and they will hear it. And it happened nationally to Israel in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the scattering, scattering of, of Israel when the Roman armies led by future emperor Titus besieged and conquered the city. You go to Israel today and you don't see the temple. It's not there. You go to Israel today, you don't see any of those things because the city was leveled. All that's left is one wall. It's not not a part of the city. It's a wall that's around the temple mount itself. What some call the wailing wall today is all that is left completely destroyed. So the Bible speaks of this judgment upon Israel, and that's what Jesus was primarily talking about. But the Bible also speaks of judgment that may come upon others. The Bible speaks of judgment that comes upon churches. You only need to go to the book of Revelation and read chapters 2 and 3 
to read how many times God said to very real churches, those churches that are mentioned there, uh, Pergamos and Smyrna and Thyatira and Laodicea and all of them, uh, those were real churches, real places. God said to them over and over and over again that they didn't straighten up, they didn't do right, they didn't fulfill their mission. Then God was going to remove their candlestick. He was going to take his blessing away from them. And how many of them are left today? Just yesterday, Kathy and I were driving back from Pittsburgh. We had gone to see your father in the hospital, and we were on our way back, and we passed. I don't remember if we talked about this or not, but, but we passed a church building that was sitting there. It looked just like this church building, one of those old white buildings, wood. It didn't have our nice addition on the side, but had, and it just looked like this. And uh, there was no sign of life anywhere, and there was a huge for sale sign in the front yard. And, you know, it might have, there might be a good reason for that. Maybe the church outgrew the building and they had gone on and built a new building. I mean, there there might be good things for that, but we all know that's probably not the case. Because we see this all the time. Churches constantly closing up. Judgment that may come upon churches. The Bible also speaks of individual judgment, and this is the one I suppose we most need to think about today. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, judgment is coming. All of us. Daniel Webster once said, my greatest thought is my accountability to God. My greatest thought is my accountability to God. Now, verse 10 is directed at Israel in its narrowest sense, but it's also true of all of us. Some stumble over Christ. Some will be judged by him for their rejection. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Individual judgment is a very real thing. Individual accountability. Every single one of us. Very, these are very real truths that are taught in Scripture. And yet we, like the nation of Israel, usually assume tomorrow will come. We have plenty of time. God will give us another chance. One pastor shared a story. Let me read it to you. He said, early in my ministry, I served a little church in rural Georgia. One Saturday, we went to a funeral in a little country church, not of my denomination. I grew up in a big downtown church. I had never been to a funeral like this one. The casket was open, and the funeral consisted of a sermon by their preacher. The preacher pounded on the pulpit and looked over at the casket. He said, it's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that, but he's dead now, and it's too late for him. But it's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You still can decide. You're still alive. It's not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. And then the preacher told how a Greyhound bus had run into a funeral procession once on the way to the cemetery and that that could happen today. He said, you should decide today. Today is the day to get your life together. Too late for old Joe, but it's not too late for you. And this preacher who was telling the story went on to say, I was so angry at that preacher. He said, on my way home, I told my wife, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and insensitive to that poor family? I found it absolutely disgusting. She said, well, I've never heard anything like that either. It was manipulative, and it was disgusting, and it was insensitive. Worst of all, it was also true. And it is true. Solomon said it perhaps better than anybody else when he said, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse number 11. Or as another translation makes it maybe a little plainer, When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it safe to do wrong. 
We've got time. Plenty of time. Don't need to worry about this judgment stuff. But what a sobering message we get from this parable. Judgment awaits those who reject Christ. There's one other thing that's mentioned here which I think is interesting. And maybe the most amazing part of it all is the response of those who heard. They heard this. And they rejected him still. Look at verse number 12. They knew that he spoke of them. And they responded exactly the opposite of the way that they ought to have responded. Notice what it says they did. They went away. They went away. You know what I think of when I think of that? I think that's just like the multitudes who sit in here in churches all across our land. Invitations are given. The gospel goes forth. Please go forth from the pulpit for people to trust Christ as their Savior. And what do the vast majority of hearers do? They get up and go away. They get up and go away. There's lunch to be had. There's people to see. There's places to go. There's afternoon activities. Why, my goodness, the NFL might be on this afternoon. And people have to get up and go away. And they completely ignore what was said. That was the response. How many would rather shut off the message? rather than listen to it and respond. Just like when we were kids, hands to ears. Nah, 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 nah. We don't want to hear that. Harry Ironside told a story. And I guess this really, this really would apply it to those among us who have never trusted Christ, and maybe there's some like that this morning, who've never trusted Christ, and haven't really thought about the coming judgment that awaits them. Harry Ironside told this story. He said a young woman who had been brought up in a Christian home and who had often had very serious convictions in regard to the importance of coming to Christ, chose instead to take the way of the world. Much much against the wishes of her godly mother, she insisted on keeping company with a wild crowd who lived only for the passing moment and tried to forget the things of eternity. Again and again she was pleaded with to turn to Christ, but she persistently refused to heed the admonitions addressed to her. Finally, she was taken with a very serious illness. All that medical science could do for her was done in order to bring about her recovery, but it soon became evident that the case was hopeless and death was staring her in the face. Still, she was hard and obdurate when urged to turn to God in repentance and take the lost sinner's place and trust the lost sinner's Savior. One night, she awoke suddenly out of a sound sleep, a frightened look in her eyes, and she asked excitedly, Mother, Mother, what is Ezekiel 7, 8 and 9? And her mother ran to the bedside and said, What do you mean, my dear? She replied that she had had a most vivid dream. She thought there was a presence in the room who very solemnly said to her, Read Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9. Not recalling the verses in question, the mother reached for a Bible. And as she opened it, her heart sank as she saw the words. But she read them aloud to the dying girl. Now I will shortly pour out my fury upon thee and accomplish mine anger upon thee. I will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. Mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. And the poor sufferer, with a look of horror on her face, sank back on the pillow, and in a few moments she was in eternity. And once more it had been demonstrated that grace rejected brings judgment at last. I don't know if that's a true story. I don't have any reason to believe Harry Ironside would make it up. But it's a true thought. It's a real illustration. And the same thing is it doesn't need to be that way. 
It doesn't need to be that way. Judgment only comes to those who reject Christ. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, Paul told the Corinthians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans chapter 10. That fictional Benjamin Martin, remember him? He said, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me and the cost is more than I can bear. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the word of God, is that you don't need to bear it. Jesus already bore it. It's already paid. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. you believe that? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you can, you can leave this service one of two ways today. Either facing that judgment which is to come, or recognizing that Jesus already faced it for you. Choice is yours. And then what about you, Christians? There's, there's a judgment for Christians as well. We don't talk about it very often. We don't ever need fear standing before God for our sin because that's already been taken care of. We don't ever need fear standing before him and worrying about walking away and going to hell. That's done. But there is a judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready for that? When the vintage time draws near and the owner of the vineyard seeks the fruit from your life, will you have any? Give. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way. And I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Shall I see grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still. Oh, he'd have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. While my memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I'll cover my face with empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. No, Lord of the years that are left to me, I yield them to thy hand. Take me, make me, mold me to the pattern 